<clears throat> the title of my sermon is End It Pretty. And the reason it's a little bit longer than usual, but I, I don't go that long in comparison, if I want to compare, is that I was working on two sermons, as those of you that were in my house last night know that I've been working on two sermons for this morning. And I, was gonna, I thought I was going to choose which one I was going to pick to complete and to finish and to bring to fruition and bring out here to the pulpit today. But as I was praying yesterday, God told me, and I was being a little bit frantic, putting my notes together for this one, putting my notes together for that one. And God said, the reason this is happening, Steve, is because you're going to put them both together. They're going to become one. And I said, wow, I'm like a married couple, two shall become one. So I, I merged it together. And you'll see, okay, two sermons in one. Nehemiah 4.6. <clears throat> it says there, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached how much? Half its height. For the people worked <clears throat> with all their heart. King James says, for the people had a mind or a heart to work. The people had a mind to get this thing done. Father, I pray that you would put that mind that was in the people there with Nehemiah's days in our heart. We're going to need it. In order to bring this thing to fruition and completion, we're going to need that same heart. Put that heart within us here today. People, Lord God, that are, have gumption, Lord God. People that will shoulder the work to see it come to completion, to glorify your name. We ask it in Christ's name. And everybody together said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> A lot of scripture today. A lot of Bible. And by and large, I've given the scriptures already up to the people up in the seventh heaven. Hallelujah. Uh, and they're ready to put the scriptures up on the screen. But the theme of my sermon, in a sense, will be out of, out of Nehemiah. We're going to be dealing with having a passion for the mission. If you're taking notes, a passion for the mission God has given you as an individual and I and us corporately. To see this thing complete. If you continue in my word, the Bible says, then you are my disciples indeed. Then you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. But you've got to continue. Okay? See, to have a passion to, to end it. That's why I've entitled my sermon, End It Pretty. And if you've ever played ball with me, you better be on my team. Because if not, I'm just kidding. But I have a saying, especially in baseball, <clears throat> when we're down to the last few outs, I don't mind a guy getting on first base playing baseball because I'll tell somebody, all right, let's end it pretty. They're going to hit it to me. I'm going to throw it to the second baseman. They're going to throw the first, and we're going to end it pretty. Double play. We win, you're out of here. Uh, well, in Christianity, we got to end it pretty. Uh, see, in sports, this, this thing, ending it pretty or, or, or having a passion for the mission, seeing it to completion. In sports, this ability, or should I put it, this inability, in not finishing well, and thus, my friend, you know, <clears throat> not scoring, or, 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 you know, or putting things on, on you know, no, no, no putting points on the board. Stay with me now, those of you that don't know about sports. <clears throat> if you can't put <clears throat> points on the board, if you can't, if you have the inability not to score, uh, then that's, that's not good. You got to put points on the board. Putting points on the board in sports, athleticism, is very vital. In the sport of football, the very key statistic, and if, ladies, if you'll just sit down and listen every now and then about a football game, you'll see John Madden talk about a key statistic is the red zone. The red zone is anything that happens in football between the 20-yard line and the goal line. 
They don't care too much about what happens between the 20 and the 50 and the 50 and the other 20. The statistics there don't matter too much. What's key to a football team and a football player is what he or the team does inside the red zone, ladies, the red zone. The 20. Did they score? Did they get at least three points? What happened? Uh, and a lot of times their inability to put the ball across the pole or into the, the pay dirt, that's why they can't become good teams. Uh, what they did in the red zone. In basketball, it's what a team does within the paint. They call it the paint in basketball. The paint is the key right here. How many points did they get? Get the ball inside the paint because you can score a whole lot better. Putting points on the board. In baseball, the key stat is how many runners were left on base or stranded? Left on third. There's a saying that says they died at third. They died at third. You can put all kinds of runners on base, but if they don't score, forget about it. Uh, see, a number of people in many given vocations and endeavors, they start good, but they end poor. They left stranded at third. They died at third. They didn't make it home. They didn't score. Uh, Jesus talked about, you know, building, building something, and they didn't count the cost, and, and, and they left the building incomplete. He says, that's going to be the laughing stock of the community. They start good, but they end poor. This kind of often does happen, even in Christianity. You start good, uh, but will you still love him tomorrow? That's the 50s. Uh, years ago, the Cleveland Indians, believe it or not, made it to the World Series. Years ago. Uh, they got beat because they ended up with this statistic, this stat. They ended up, the, the record still stands today. During the, the course of the seven games of the World Series, they left the most runners stranded on base ever in a World Series history. They were pretty good. Their ability to get on base was pretty good. But to touch home and score, terrible. Their inability uh, to end it pretty. Their inability to bring it home. They were stranded at third base. They died at third. Uh, they couldn't end it pretty. They had a good start, but they had a poor finish. Today we're going to look at the life of three individuals, three men, all right, and how they ended their lives, how they started their lives. Uh, we're going to be looking at Paul, Nehemiah, and also Demas. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. But you've got to keep a marker there in Nehemiah because we're going to come back a lot to it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 through 10. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 10. We're going to be examining quite a bit of scripture here today. Do you have a 2 Timothy 4? Verse 7 says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race, Paul says. He knew how to score in the red zone. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Crown has to do with athleticism. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. He was playing sports in the spirit. On that day. Not only to me. But also all those who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loves this present world, has departed and deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatius. 
See, well, Paul was ending it pretty. Demas was finishing poorly. Did you hear what I said? Paul was, he said, I've kept the faith. I've, I, I've run my race. I, I'm ending it pretty. But Demas was ending it poorly. Though he started well, Demas, he'd lost his passion for the mission. Uh, and, you know, he left his life stranded on third base. Did you hear what I said? Left this stranded on third. He had, you know, he had a bad statistic when it came to life in the red zone. See, we are also aware of Judas. Many of you do know about Judas, unfortunately. He had a good start. He was one of the 12 apostles. Judas had a great start. He was picked by Jesus to be one of the, you know, the starting 12, so to speak. But he ended it poorly. Started well, but he died at thirst. Unable to take advantage of the opportunities he had to score. And to convert his opportunities in the red zone. You and I, we have an opportunity here. So far, so God. We've gone this way. Uh, well, don't let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, I'm going to get too excited, praise the Lord. Uh, now, it said, I don't know how true this is, but most people would agree with this. When Leonardo da Vinci <coughs> was painting The Last Supper, and somebody gave us a gift there at our house, and we have a beautiful, beautiful sculpture that they've given us. We have it out, and you can see it when you come to party, hallelujah, at our house. Uh, we put it there on the table. But when he was doing the original painting of The Last Supper there in Milan, Italy, what Leonardo da Vinci did, and it took him well over a year to paint it, what he did was he would send out some of his people to go get caricatures or get individuals that, that could sit and stand for the disciples and paint them. Anthony could be John the Baptist. He wasn't a disciple. I'm just testing you. Uh, you know, all these different ones. The very, one of the very first guys that he painted was John the Beloved. And so when they went and got John the Beloved, they brought a, a young man to sit, to be there for the portrait of the 12 disciples besides Christ. Somebody had to be Jesus. They brought him as well. But John the Beloved was a very, very handsome individual. Very handsome individual. Uh, that's who they picked. Oh, yeah. Uh, let me see. Who should I pick? Should I pick Lenny Lisa? Yes. All right. John the Beloved. Uh, how about Esteban, the second best looking guy in this whole church? You gotta pick Esteban. Hallelujah. The first is not you, Keith. I don't care what Nicole says. Hallelujah. Uh, I to talk to my wife on that one. I mean, they picked him. Then months went by, and they started painting different other individuals, painting them. They finally got to, you know who I'm talking about here, Judas. They sent out another team to go, same guys, to go pick another guy to stand for Judas. So they had to pick a guy that looked, you know, pretty Judas type. Daryl, a bit, you know, disenchanted, like, you know, like life, you know, handed me a lemon, and I swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. So they picked the guy, and they picked the right guy, a good guy. So he was sitting there, and Leonardo da Vinci was painting him. But he noticed as he was painting him that the, the, the individual that was sitting for Judas would always stare at John the Beloved. Just kept checking him, checking him out. He'd be painting him, and he'd always see that he'd be looking at, right at John the Beloved. 
Finally, Leonardo da Vinci asked him, why are you so focused on John the Beloved? He says, because I was that man that you picked to be John the Beloved. And now look at me months later. He started good. He was handsome. But life has a way of doing these things to you. Uh, he didn't end it pretty. He ended it poorly. Uh, and that, that can happen to, to a number of individuals. Uh, I mean, he started well, but he ended wrong, like Judas. Uh, see, here in, in, in this portion of Scripture that we're covering, okay, the Jewish people in the book of Nehemiah, we're getting back to the book of Nehemiah. Where are we getting back to? Nehemiah. The Bible says the people had a heart or a, or a passion to build. They kept the faith. They kept the passion. That's what the Bible says. Guard your heart for out of it are the issues of life. Guard your heart for out of it are the what of life? Have we settled the issue that we're going to bring this project to completion someday? We've got to settle it in our hearts. We're going we're gonna to do this thing. It's going to get done. By hook or by hook. But how did the people get to this point in place? How did they get to the point in place where they brought, the, the, you know, to accomplish this project to half its height? It's good for you and I, Victor, to study this. Matter of fact, in January, I'm going to go on a whole series on the book of Nehemiah, getting us ready for the project. A whole series on Sunday morning, just out of the book of Nehemiah. Okay? See, they had completed half the wall. But again, the question is, how had they gotten this far? This will be a good question to look over and to examine because, Victor Average, we've gone almost half too. So we're right there where Nehemiah 4.6 was. We're right there. So the scripture, in a sense, and this message was tailor-made for us. The answer is found. How did they get to the point of place? The answer is found in chapters 3 through 4, verse 6. And we're going to pretty much cover that today. We're going to be covering three things. Okay? Mobilization, coordination, and appreciation. That's how they got there. Through mobilization, the vision, coordination, everybody working together, and appreciation. That's how they got to chapter 4, verse 6, where we're at right now. So it's good for us to study the book of Nehemiah. See, the Jewish people were mobilized together by, a, you know, by the leadership of Nehemiah and through his leadership. I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. And then 30 through 32. So which means a lot of reading. Okay? But as you're turning to that, let me give you a quote that a very, very knowledgeable old soldier once said. Listen to this. Very important. An old army officer who'd been around the block a few times, who'd been through a few battles and a few doozies, a few wars in his day, said this. He said this of a young officer. He says, a young officer, there's an old officer now, a young officer, the first battle that he must fight, <clears throat> the first battle this young officer must fight is the battle for the hearts of his men. Did you hear what I said? Before he can take his men out there to fight the real war, he's going to have to fight the battle for the heart of his men. If he wins that battle, they'll pretty much follow him anywhere. If he, if he doesn't win that battle then failure could come his way. He could finish poorly. Do you have Nehemiah 3? A lot of reading. Stay with me now. All the way to verse 18. But mark this. 
Oh, excuse me. I was reading 2 Timothy 3. All right. Nehemiah 3, verse 1. Eliashab, what was he? And his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, stay with me now, and the Kur son of Imri built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams, uh, we've, put, we've put beams right here, and put its doors, we're going to be doing that soon, and the bolts and bars in place. Miramah, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshuzebel. These guys had some heavy names. Made repairs. The next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Johida, son of Pasa, and Meshulam, son of Basaidia. They laid its beams to put its doors and bolts and bars in the place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Malata of Gibeon and Zaidan of Mernoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, one of the goldsmiths, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, excuse me, ah, oh, Versace, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, ooh, man, a lot of power, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite the house, and Hattush, son of <clears throat> that guy, made repairs next to him. Malkajai, son of Harim, and Hassab, son of Pethamoah, repaired another section. Remember this. Another section, the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halabash, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. With the help of his daughters. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, daughters. Sometimes girls make guys look like wimps. Hasta la señoras, Hallelujah. The girls, if a man ain't doing it, do it, move over. That's right. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars into the place. They also repaired 500 yards and the wall as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate was repaired by Melchizedek, son of Rakab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarium. He rebuilt its doors and bolts and bars into the place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kosa, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the Pool of Siloam by, by the king's garden as far as the steps from down from the city of David. Beyond. Now chapter, now verse 30 through 32. Next to him, Hananiah, the son of Shalemiah and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalap, repaired another section. Remember that, another section. Next to them, Mishalem, son of Barakiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Mal Mal Malachi, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants, and merchants, and merchants made repairs. My goodness. Give me a hand. I'm just kidding. Yeah, give me another tongue. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, now, when you read this, let me just make mention first. 
there's a number of different styles of leadership. If you study on leadership, there's like visionary leadership, managerial leadership, different types of leadership. This one I would call Nehemiah, and if you're taking notes, write this one down. His style was biographical leadership. Maybe some of you never heard of that. Biographical. By that we mean he led with his life, his biography, his life. He led, he was a man of action. And in a sense, I like this because that's the kind of style of leadership that, in a sense, that I have. I might not teach, I'm not, but the way I, I, I try to lead with my life, I try to teach with my life, I try to emulate through my life. That's the way Nehemiah did it. Okay? Biographical. Now, when we read this portion of scripture, and hopefully you stayed with me, isn't it a little boring? Yes. I ain't dumb. I've been preaching many, many years. But I did it for a purpose and for a reason. Not to test you, but it's very vital. Sometimes, whenever you read the Bible, how about you turn to it? Sometimes you say, God, speak to me today. You open it, and it says, And Emiel begot Shema, and Shema begot, and every begot, and begot. Oh, my God. Uh, it just seems like, wow, there's nothing here. If there wasn't anything there, God wouldn't have put it in, in print. There's more to here that meets the eye. Sometimes it'll make you go, aye, 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 when you really find out about it. Remember that we, we, we got, remember one time I taught on, on Nathan? And so and he, the kids, the, the, the sons of, of, of David were this name and this name and Nathan. And we went on and on. You could just skip it like of nothing. But it's heavy. David men, named one of his sons Nathan. And Nathan was the guy that told him what he couldn't do. Nathan was the guy that said, David, you can't do that. It was his pastor. Yeah, David, thou art that man. <coughs> uh, so there's pretty heavy stuff. Right here, the same thing. Some heavy stuff is being mentioned in this portion of Scripture, Nehemiah 3. There's some pretty instructing and important stuff here. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah shows the insight of Nehemiah. The insight that he used to mobilize the people. Nehemiah displays unusual organizational skills. Point number one is mobilization. This is what we're dealing with. Mobilizing. That's how the people got to the point of half building, half the building. And we want to find out how they got there. How they got there was mobilization. Success doesn't happen in a vacuum. Success is not dropped on your lap. It takes people like our office staff. It takes people that know what they're doing. It doesn't happen just like that. Per chance, happen chance. No. It takes skill and organization. That's what Nehemiah did. And if we're going to do what we're going to do, we're going to, take, we're going to need skilled people. Uh, go to the universities. Get your degree. Because what have I said before? You might get your first degree from USC, second degree from UCLA, third degree, you get it here. Hallelujah. We'll make sure we give you the third degree. We're from the streets, a lot of us. Hallelujah. Uh, we might not have an education. We got some stats. Hallelujah. Now, look at verse 1 of Nehemiah 3. Look at it, look at it, look at it. Eliashab, the high priest, and his fellow priests, went to work and repaired the sheep gate. The work began first and foremost with the pastor. Nehemiah knew what he was doing. It began with the high priest, the main man. He put his hand to the plow. He had to leave the sacrifice. By the way, why do you think it was near the sheep gate? Nehemiah knew where to put him because they were always sacrificing. The priests were always sacrificing. They placed him right by the sheep gate. So when the sheep would come in, oh, I'm going to sacrifice this one. Oh, little lamb, you're mine. Ah. See, he was strategic. Key organizational skills that this man had. But that was the right place to start. 
If the priests don't work, why should I? That's what the Bible says. In Hosea 4.9, it says, like priests, like people. Hosea 4.9 says that. The way the priests are, the way the people are going to be. Cardinal Law found that out. Hallelujah. Huh? You've got to be a representative. Uh, it's, it's very, very important. See, the people, by and large, will be like the priests. In verse 8, in Nehemiah 3, it says that the finicky goldsmiths, the jewelers, and the perfume workers with their perfumed hands, dishpan hands, and long fingernails, they too were lifting up rock and rubble and getting down and dirty. Why do you think verse 8 happened? Why do you think the jewelers were getting their hands all messed up and picking up rock? Because they knew that if the priests will do it, if the pastor did it, my God, I'll do it too. They were following suit. Nehemiah knew what he was doing. He knew who to get uh, and who to start with. Start with the priests. Uh, if they're willing to get down and dirty, then I'll do, I'll do it too. Uh, he knew how to mobilize. Look at verses 12 and 5. 12 and 5. We're moving fast here. Trust me. We're moving fast. Shalom, son of the Hela, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Look at verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their rulers would not put their shoulders of the work under their supervisors. See, one ruler got girls involved. Even the girls got involved. Women. While the Te Tekoite rulers turned a cold shoulder rather than putting a shoulder to the work. Instead of putting a shoulder to the work, they turned a cold shoulder. I don't know why. Maybe they felt they're too above it. No, 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 no. I, I'm intelligent. I'm, you know, no, 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 no. I'm the, I'm the God. Uh, they, I'm the smartest man alive. I don't do that. I leave it to, uh, you know, ghetto people. The little people. I'm not going to clean motel rooms. <laughs> uh, let alone put my hand to the rubble. <coughs> uh. <coughs> See, they refuse to put the yoke on. That's really what it means. <coughs> Excuse me, in the Hebrew, that's what it means. When they wouldn't shoulder the work. They refuse to put the yoke to their shoulder. Those Tekoite nobles, they refused to be yoked up. They didn't want to play the team. Yoke follow means team member. They didn't want to be a part of the team. For God only knows why, and they know why. These didn't die. See, on third... These individuals, they didn't die on third. They didn't even make it to the plate. They wouldn't even put on a uniform. No, 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 no. They don't want to go to the war. They don't want to go. They don't want to put their hand to the plow. At least the other guys died on third. Uh, they didn't even get to the plate. They didn't support the work. That's the way it is in, in, in many churches. Victory Outreach Hayward included. Uh, but here the Bible says, even the daughters of Shalon did. Shalon had daughters, as a matter of fact, his name is Shalon. Shalon had daughters who would put shame to the other people. Shalem would shame him. That's what he did, his daughters. 
Could you imagine? Even, even the girls were over there. Ah, come on. Ah. I'm from the woman's house. Ah. Now, the next way that the Jews were able to get to have, build and have the wall is by coordination. Mobilization and then coordination. See, it's one thing to mobilize the people to want to be willing to work, but it's quite another thing to get them to coordinate that work together so that it's done efficiently, proficiently, and speedily. Had to be done quick at that time. See, Nehemiah had a great game plan. Uh, and each man, each family knew their function. Listen to me. He had it down. He had, I have a sermon, someday I'll, I'll preach again because I found it. It's called Nehemiah. Out of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew a lot of stuff. This man was knowledgeable. Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew Nehemiah what to do. Uh, he did. He knew how to do stuff. Uh, because see, the people from Jericho, they came six miles. Uh, forget Eminem's eight miles. These guys came six miles. <clears throat> They'd come six miles up north and come in to Jerusalem. They had to be there every day. They had to be there on time, but they had to know what to do. They couldn't find, well, what do I do now? You ever been to a job where, you know, okay, just want to hang out, try to get away with stuff? No, these guys knew exactly. Listen, hey, isn't it, isn't it 10 o'clock on Sunday? Don't you go to that church, Victory Outreach? What you doing still in bed? Uh, come on, what's wrong with you? See, they knew exactly where they had to be, what to do, and how to get there. They were organized. Uh, because they had to commute daily, six miles. But when you get there, they knew exactly what they had to do. See, rebuilding the walls was a very well-coordinated effort. Everyone had a defined work assignment. We read the words next to them, meaning there was no gaps in the walls. Next to, next to them worked this one. Next to them worked this one. There was no gaps. Nehemiah filled in all the gaps, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. Nehemiah also knew where to assign the people. Verse 1, like I said, says the, the, the priests were assigned near to the sheep gate. The priest's job consisted mainly of offering animals as sacrifices, especially sheep. Thus, their place of work was close to their place of work, uh, where, they, where they had their livelihood. Then the Bible says families were assigned to work part of the wall right by their houses. Uh, right by their houses where they had to work. Then not only did Nehemiah use mobilization and coordination, see how fast we're moving? But thirdly, he used appreciation. In chapter 4, verse 6, the people had a heart or a mind to work, which means an appreciation for the work. They had a mind. They had a heart for the work. In other words, they appreciated what they were doing. Uh, this is so key in Christianity, in ministry, and in our church as well. The people understood the importance of their contribution. They had an appreciation of what they were doing. They were laboring for a benefit and the benefit of their entire families and for their reputation and especially for God. Did you hear what I said? They were building for their families. In other words, hey, you're going to build right here, right by your house. Do you value your house? Yes, I signed on September the 16th. Well, then take care of your house. Uh, yes, yes. That's Nehemiah knew what he was doing. Then take care of your house. You know they're going to work harder when it's closer to your house. Uh, 
Then he says, also work for the reputation of, of the Jewish people. Our walls are in disrepair. <clears throat> I've told you before, you know what that meant? Whenever the walls of a city were torn down, it meant that the men had no heart. The men didn't give an oliasa. They didn't care. All they wanted was to roll up some cigarettes right here in the pocket and, and walk bad. And, hey, buddy, hey, what's going on, homie? Yeah, baby. Where's the liquor store? Let's pitch in, eh? How, much, how many change you got, eh? Oh, by the way, have you seen our new TVs? <laughs> Hallelujah. I was sleeping in it. End it pretty. I will when I get to it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I ain't at the end yet. Ah. But that's what it meant, men. That's why our barrios and our ghettos and our inner cities are the predicament they are in the day. Because we don't give a noliase. Listen, we can't be like that. It meant, you know what it meant when the walls were broken down? It meant that the men didn't care if the enemy were to come in and rape their daughters and take their wives. No more. Had to be a chivalrous call. Victor, I was just serving notice of the devil. The inner cities of the world are going to change. We care. Forget about all that thing that disrespect. We're going to care. Almost halfway done with my sermon. Let's go on. No, no, no. Two-thirds. Uh, but they knew what they were laboring for. They knew what the Apostle Paul would say years later in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, that they were not just beating the air. The Apostle Paul says, I don't just beat the air, shadow box. i said it before. I've used this illustration. I mean, anybody can, can be bad when you're shadow boxing. But when you got a real opponent, <laughs> Pastor Steve, <laughs> read for me. Uh, so they, they knew this is not shadow boxing time. Let me tell you something about Christianity. It's pressure. No sissy can just serve God. If you ain't a sissy, listen, look at me. I salute you. But if you're a sissy, my God, figure it out. It's pressure. Church again? Yeah! I got a gift. Shut up! So do I! <laughs> Didn't you read verse 1? It starts with a priest. <laughs> Buy you some dresses. And the sons of Shalem will put you to shame. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. I know I wasn't speaking to nobody here right now. I was just beating the air. Yeah, right. Ah, hit you by the nose. Just in case you're bleeding. This is not for your tears, this is for your nose. Hey, Pastor, you me, call me a baba, call me a chatra. Uh, they did things on purpose in Nehemiah. They knew what they were doing. Every time they gave, they hit the enemy. Don't let the devil give you a red, red nose, red, bloody nose. You give him a bloody nose. Every time you give, every time you fast, every time you pray, every time you witness, you're hitting him upside the head. And I OD'd on drugs nine times. Well, not drugs, one drug. Uh, so I know what it's like. Uh, he hit me nine times, he hit me hard. I'm going to hit him back. Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Very quick. We're moving fast. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Verse 17 and 18. 
Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be a what? Disgrace or a reproach. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began, they began. They started good, this good work. Nehemiah allowed the people to see what the repairing of the walls meant. And that it meant a lot to people. It meant a lot to repair the walls. It meant the Jews' relationship and fellowship with God had once again been restored. Listen to what I said there. When they were rebuilding the walls, you know what it meant? That's what the, the, the enemy didn't want to rebuild. It meant now they were in good standing with Almighty God. Uh, that's why the church that we represent, we, we, we deal a lot with the inner city. We represent inner city people a lot. Yes, we have other strata of society, and God bless you for that. Those of you that are from a different society, I salute you. Because you're helping a great cause here. And you, you've come to the right place. God brought you here. I wonder if I fit. Yes, sit. You do. There ain't no greater cause just about. This is a great cause, this kind of ministry. But it meant now that they were back in fellowship with God. People from Dakota were now in fellowship with God. You're kidding. Yeah! East Oakland is now in fellowship with God. They're in a good relationship with They think about God. And you heard me share my testimony in the first street meeting we had in Dakota. People in Dakota, we're here to make you think about God. And they responded. God bless you for that. It meant that God's hand was upon them. Uh, Victory Average, does that mean a lot to you? It meant a lot to the people to rebuild the walls. It means a lot to do this because the reputation precedes us to get this thing done. It means a lot. I hope it does. Because my friend, in expanding our walls, it means God is now visiting the inner cities of the world. People who are not a people are... Uh, are no longer a reproach, and a, and a, and a, and a, but they're a blessing now. Pastor Sunday's church speaks volumes to the world. The greatest seating capacity church in the greater downtown Los Angeles area is the Victory Outreach Church. It'll seat 4,500 people. Uh, and this one's not going to be too far behind either. We've been prophesied about it as of late. It's going to happen. It speaks volumes. See, according to Nehemiah, appreciation begins at home. Nehemiah mentions the home a whole lot. Fight for your families, for your homes. It begins with your family. Because Nehemiah, he put a lot of emphasis on family. But Nehemiah not only appreciated family, he also appreciated the workers. In verse 3, Nehemiah gives honor where honor is due. Matter of fact, let me read you verse 3. He gives honor where it's due. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams to put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Uh, it mentions there. It mentions their names. Uh, verse 9, he takes special time to name certain city officials who represented half the city of Jerusalem. In other words, he says, hey, he mentioned people by names. This guy is an official of the city. He took the time to laud these individuals. You're doing a good job. Uh, as you read chapter 3, we see, my friend, that Nehemiah saw a lot. He took notice of what was going on and who was doing what. And this guy's doing good. This guy's doing that. Look at this guy. Look what they're doing. He was giving honor. honor. He appreciated the people's work, their sacrifices, their efforts of the individuals and also the families. Six times, Nehemiah says, they repaired 
another section. And I read it real loud. When I read it there in, 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 in Nehemiah 3. They repaired, it says there, another section. In the Hebrew, it means a second measure. Which means the extra mile. In other words, these people, there were some people that went a second measure. They didn't just do their job, they did somebody else's. Especially the nobles of Tekoa. They didn't want to do it, but they, they still had to get done. Somebody had to do their job. So there was a lot of second measure people. There was a lot of extra mile people here that were willing to go the extra mile. And if we're going to get this thing done, we're going to need extra mile people. How come I have to give again? Because the Tekoites didn't want to do it. They're to shashas. Come on, be a man. And God's going to bless you anyways. Big time. Oh, and I hope you believe in the work that we're doing. Because this is what it's going to take. Individuals that have been into the vision that we have here. Uh, see, Nehemiah appreciated these people, these people that he mentions here. Another section, they were doing double duty. And listen to me, some of you are going to have to do double duty sometimes. But it's all right. I know what it is like in the men's home. You know, they do a lot of work, but sometimes you've got to do double duty, guys, because this is not just a home. This is not just a place to get off drugs. Right, Chucky? This is not just a place to get off drugs. Another part of the world might be depending upon you going the extra mile and living there. Right now, man, when do I get out, Holmes? When do we eat? Well, let's give them jam sandwiches, two pieces of bread jam together. <laughs> Listen to me as I close. These people in Nehemiah 3 and 4, uh, like us, were halfway home. We're halfway home. But a big, big key is to be like the Apostle Paul and to keep the passion. And unlike Demas, uh, end poorly. That's why I put two sermons together, if you notice here. Nehemiah and Paul. Paul kept the faith. He finished the race. Demas didn't. How did the Apostle Paul manage to end it pretty? Well, I'm going to end it pretty here too. I'm going to tell you how. The same way Nehemiah and the Jews did. The Bible says Paul kept the faith. In other words, Paul was a person with conviction. Paul had certain things that were non-negotiable. They were not for sale. Bill Hybels, as I've said before, maybe the greatest pastor in America, he says, what will you take a bullet for? Listen to me as I get close to closing here. What will you take a bullet for? What makes your life worth living for? What gives meaning and purpose to your life? The 49ers? The Raiders? I like the Rams, but they don't, give, they, don't give, they don't give meaning and emphasis to my life. See, if there's nothing in your life that you'll sacrifice for, that you'll take a bullet for, then your life is a dull, dull life. I've lived it. It's a very selfish life. It's existence. It's not living. If we have a, a courage to give our conviction for a great conviction, excuse me, if we have the courage for, with a great conviction and for a great cause, then we're pretty much on our way to end in a pretty. In other words, what I mean, if we have a courage to give to a great cause, then you're probably going to avoid ending it dull and ending it poorly. You're on your way to ending it pretty. If you have a courage to give to a great cause and to a great conviction, then you're going to be okay. I'm telling you that. Uh, see, we're liable to be lethal inside the red zone, inside the...
inside the red zone now, he's lethal. Why? Because he decided. Like, Larry, you're going to decide today. Ricky Williams had all kinds. He was a Heisman Trophy winner. But he, the first few years in the, in the league were terrible. He wasn't, he wasn't driven. He wasn't into it. But now he's driven like crazy. Something happened to him. I hope his coach got a hold of him. And I hope I'm the coach here today that's going to get a hold of some of you. You're going to say, I don't care. I'll wear my hair like Ricky Williams. I don't care. Hallelujah. But I'm going to be lethal. I'm going to be against the devil inside the red zone. Give me the ball. I'm going to make it. We're going to spread pay dirt here. Move over, Tyrell Owens. You ain't seen nothing yet, America. I'm going to spin the football in my thing. That's almost impossible. Hallelujah. Uh, has there ever been a great man without a great conviction? No. No. The best way to save yourself from a poor finish, from dying at third, is to cultivate and carry a great conviction. Uh, see, having a great cause is your safeguard against a poor finish. Did you hear what I said? Having a great cause, and victory is a very chivalrous cause, is a safeguard against a poor finish. It was said that when Henry Ford decided to finally go to church, he told the guy that was witnessing to him, he says, okay, I'll go to church, but take me to a church that's going to challenge me. Henry Ford was a smart man. He said, I don't want to go to any Johnny-come-lately, bringing in the sheets kind of a church. I want a church going to challenge me. I'm going to pour my life out into this. I finally decided I'm going to do something here, but listen, I don't want no bunk stuff. I want my life to count. Uh, Don Summers, who belonged to the Billy Graham... Evangelistic Association, he used to preach at our church. And he said something that really, really stuck to me. And I often repeat it. He said, I was trying to say it like he did. He's Baptist. You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. And he would go on like, you know, and I said, oh, that's deep. I'll say it like me. You know what? You ain't ready to live. You're dreaming until you're ready to die. What will you take a bullet for? Figure that one out, then give you the rest of your life for that. Uh, see, the Apostle Paul had been caught by a great cause. In Philippians 3.12, he says, he says, I want to apprehend that for which I was apprehended for. In other words, I want to catch what I was caught for. I was caught for a great cause. Not no Johnny come lately kind of little thing over here. Ah. Uh, Think Chucky's gonna stay in Indonesia away from everybody? His family who he loves? For a little rumpkin, nipnack kind of a little life? No. It's to be a great cause. Paul latched himself, as Henry Ford would later, to a great cause. Listen to me as I really close. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. I'm gonna finish with verses 2, 3, and 11. But listen to me as I have you turn to Nehemiah 6. These are one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. Verse 11 is anyways. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 2, 3, and 11. Before 9-11, and the people coming and knocking down the Twin Towers, by and large, the job of the Christian community and church and missionaries was 
to go to the four corners of the world, preach the gospel, propagate peace, love, and harmony, and unity. Bring us all together. That was by and large our job. But that was the job of the generation and the generations before you. I'm here to tell you from my estimation and putting this sermon together, they and we failed. We failed. That was our job before. To go out there and bring harmony, love and peace and joy and happiness. And that's still our job. That's still our job. But before 9-11, that was our total job. And I was doing it. Some of you have been with me. John, you went with me to, to Cape Town. Bernard, you went with me. Did, didn't we do okay? Didn't people like me? Yeah, well, they liked us. Nine of us were good dudes. God can change your life, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah. Uh, you know, God can do it here. Walter, you were there. You know. That's your, that's your homegrown people there. I was bad. And we was, you know, they were tripping out in the Mexico. Uh, looking at Walter. You were damn uh, Hallelujah. Uh, that's right. Uh, before 9-11, that was our job. But in 9-11, all things changed. 9-11, we come against these Muslim people, Islamic religion people, that are willing to die and kill Christians. It's war. We're still supposed to bring love and peace and harmony. That's still our, but now it's the, the game has changed now. The tactics are different now. Even girls, 18 years old, in Palestine, are dying for their cause. How old are you, young lady? 17. 18, 17 years, they're dying for what they believe in. Taking their matters into their own hands. We're not going to be able to fight that any other way. We're not. They upped the ante. They raised the standard, so to speak. It's, it's going to be more than that now. It's going to take people with, with, do you have Nehemiah 6, 2, 3, and 11? Oh, let me get to the Lord. I love verse 11. Might be my most favorite scripture. It says there, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I said, oh no, uh-uh. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great work, victory outreach, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? Verse 11. Ooh, if you don't know this verse, tattoo it in the tables of your heart. Heart, not body. But I said... Should such a man, he said man, like me, run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Uh-uh. Uh. See, we're going to have to go the extra mile now. Dealing with, with the, what we've got to do now on this planet, on this, on this earth. We're, we're, it's not going to be just peace, love, and joy in the Holy Ghost. There might be a little bit of death here. Sorry. Sorry. If you are not willing to do that, then the Palestinian people have something on you. And love constrains. It's love that compels us. They're wrong people. They don't got the goods. The Bible is the truth. These people are willing to die for the Koran and for Muhammad. They just killed 200 people in Nigeria, where we have a church now. 
in Nigeria. We're there. They just killed 200 people because they said that the Quran says that anybody that talks bad about Muhammad should die, and they killed them. Because somebody said, oh, Muhammad would have loved to have married one of those women that are here for the Miss World contest. Now, that's stupidity. What they did is stupid. You don't just take a human life just like that. But they, they believe in their cause. So did Nehemiah. So do I. Nehemiah said, should such a man as I run? Uh-uh. See, Nehemiah had settled in his heart what he was willing to die for, what he was willing to live for. This sermon is very important to me. Very important. Because we got a job to do. Right, right now, we're not, some of you, we ask for your tithes and your pledges. It's like, oh, they're going to kill me. No, we don't. But this is very important. We're going to reach more people here. And this is a church with a big vision to help Pastor Sonny's vision and, and, and to go all over the world. We're going to do that. It's going to happen. But it's going to take people that have this, like Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, listen, Gisham and Sambalan, you talking to me? Then you don't know me too good, buddy. If you knew me, you'd know I'm not a runner. I used to be because I was a dope fiend. I'd run to the bottle, I'd run to the needle, I'd run to the spoon, but no more. No more. Something happened to me 29 years ago. Should such a man as I, no, no, I'm a man now. I'll take care of my family. I'll take care of my children. I'm doing this for my family, my children, my loved ones, spiritual family. I end with this, and I'll end it pretty, I hope. There was this man walking by where they were building a church. And he asked three of them, hey, what are you doing? One of them says, hey, I'm making bricks. Then he asked the second one, hey, what are you doing? Hey, I'm, I'm making a living. Then he asked the third one, hey, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral. They were all doing the same thing, just making bricks. But one had a big, powerful one, hey, I'm just making bricks. I'm just, I just want a paycheck. I'm, I'm making a living. The other one had a big one. says, hey, everything that I do, every amen, every dollar that I give, I'm building me a cathedral. Christianity is perspective. Don't let the devil lull you. You're important. Every one of you. Every one of you. Everything you do is important. Uh, everything you involve yourself in, especially in a project like this. We're building a cathedral for the honor and glory of God. Because only God knows who he's going to bring in here on that side. Who he's going to save, who he's going to win. Could be your family, could be your friends, could be your enemies. But it could be missionaries. It could be future pastors. I want every head bowed and every eye closed. I told you ahead of time it was going to be a little lengthy. By and large it's not, but today it was. I went about five, ten minutes longer than usual, but as every head is bowed and every eye is closed.